Hi there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about player narrative control in D&D and other kinds of player contributions to the campaign. Does it even have a place in Dungeons & Dragons? Does it empower or burden your players? All that and more today on Wandering DMs. Awesome. Awesome. This is a, an interesting topic, Dan. I feel like we've we've talked about it I've talked about it with uh, other friends. Uh, I think it was just just before the show. I was quoting some conversations I've had with Colleen from Ten Dead Rats about this. Um, this is definitely an area where I think story games tries to differentiate itself from uh, what they would call trad gaming, right, or traditional gaming of of D and D. But I believe that both sides of the fence have uh, interesting lessons they can learn from each other. I think so too, and I think it's um, it's it's one where I might be a little bit uh, grognardy uh, about the issue. So I and and granted that you and I, Paul, might possibly have slightly different opinions on this. We have um, no. we've, we've 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 kind of orbited around dealing with this subject for a while and been a little bit leery about it. But I thought it would make for a really good, really good conversation today, and, and maybe we'll still be friends at the end of it. <laughs> I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Uh, before yeah. we get into it, I should say uh, happy holidays to anybody that's uh, watching. Hopefully you had a good uh, Thanksgiving holiday this weekend. And as always, uh, don't forget that uh, we do have Super Chat running on YouTube. So if you have a comment that uh, you really want us to uh, call out, uh, feel free to Super Chat it at your option. We'll definitely call that out if, if you said something that went by too fast for us to pick up the first time or something like that. So a bunch mm -hmm. of tools at your disposal. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone leaning over their their plates of reheated leftovers while they watch this will uh, slow the the stream of of, of discourse. Um, yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly this one might get a little uh, a little heated. Uh, but, a little uh, spicy for your otherwise bland yeah. uh, 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 leftovers. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. All right, all right. So. Um, Let's get let's get into. I can't even remember how this topic came up. Uh, was this a request from a viewer, or is it just something that we talked about? Probably doesn't matter. Point being, um, I've certainly played a fair number of story games that incorporate um, player input, player control um, mm -hmm. to to a very strong degree, all, all the way up to the point where of, of games that call themselves GMless, right? Where there's mm -hmm. there's no GM, there's just uh, everybody everybody sort of pulls their own weight and contributes to the to the narrative and the story and the control and the implementation of the rules and etc. Um, and that's certainly a way I think story games differentiate themselves from traditional D and D, where all power resides in the DM to the to the level of like we've seen something that we've wondered about. Uh, I think that is implied but never really written about possibly in early gaming. The DM went so far as to even roll the dice, right? Definitely, definitely. Oh, I have a tag right here. I, my, my volume of original D&D &D volume one right here definitely says that even for player character abilities. So I dumped some hmm. papers on the floor. Um, uh, yeah, it says uh, prior to character selection by players, it is necessary 
for the referee to roll three six-sided dice in order to rate each of the various abilities. So as to uh, give the player uh, an, an aid in selecting their role or their class, actually. So yeah, I, there's definitely been a trend in the legacy of role-playing games for, for more and more stuff to pass from the DM's hands to the player's hands. And initially, that was everything. Initially, the DM rolled all the dice. The DM had all the information. The DM, starting at the tables, as we understand it from Arneson and Gygax, had all the rules, told the players none of the rules. And supposedly mm -hmm. when uh, the D&D book was being drafted and the players a year or two into Arneson's campaign finally got a copy of the rules, they said, oh, now we're gonna know the rules. Arneson laughed at them and said, ha ha, you think that's gonna do you any good in my campaign at all? None of that is relevant. So, um, <laughs> right, and so that would be, a, that, yeah. supposedly Gygax, physically hid from his players. Gygax hid himself behind two filing <laughs> cabinets. So he himself wasn't even visible to the players and was only a disembodied voice. So the, the, the level funny. of, of um, you know, authorship is kind of what I think about it, of full mm -hmm. control over the game, the system, the rules, the places, the dice, the randomization, everything uh, would be pretty mind blowing for you know modern players that got into the game with fifth edition DD or something like that it's very very different and just the whole story for 50 years has been more and more stuff the dice the stats the abilities player character options that the DD that the dm might not even know about nowadays um has been this slow you know downhill river <clears throat> um bringing us to where we are today I mean, this interesting uh, aspect here, I think, that we're dancing around a little bit, which is, which is sort of like, what are the duties of the DM, right? What What is the DM ultimately responsible for? And um, obviously, one of those is implementation of the rules, right? The DM as arbiter or referee or whatnot, the, the DM is there to, to uh, take all the input of what the characters are trying to do, take the input of the pre-written content, and arbitrate the rules and dictate the outcome, right? Um, but also, there's this aspect of, well, who created the content and when was the content created, right? That sort of authorship, if you will, of, um, you know, when, when you start looking at story games, especially GM-less story games, right? They try to take this aspect of like, well, we're going to take that control of the content and the narrative and distribute it amongst all the players. And, um, and the interesting thing is that that means that that content creation must be done on the fly. Mm -hmm. Right, like because it's being distributed amongst a whole bunch of players, whereas with D and think the expectation is a lot of the content is generated ahead of time and then presented to the players by the DM. And I think you can pick those two things apart and ask yourself separately: if we're looking at D and D, if we're talking about modern D and D, you're going to sit down and play fifth edition D and D. How much of the rule implementation is being shifted to the players, and how much of the content authoring is being shifted to the players? Because I certainly agree that like fifth edition is definitely trying to distribute the rules more, but I don't mm -hmm. think it's trying to distribute content generation to the players. Uh, seems like uh, I would agree with that. And I feel like the rules shift probably started like with third edition, I'm guessing. I think I feel like <laughs> third edition was the big uh, shift by, you know, Jonathan Tweet and Skip Williams and those guys um, to give more supports to the granted the observation that it's 
it's it's hard to be a really top-notch DM. It takes a, it takes a lot of skills, and the observation mm. at the time was there aren't a lot of them out there. We want more D and D games running that aren't dependent on a, a super dedicated DM. Therefore, we'll shift more of the rule stuff over to the players' end. Um, the li- little side benefit, and then the players can buy more supplements to benefit their character, and that turns into a business <laughs> small, case, right? Small, small win, side win. benefit there. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Win-win. So, so I agree that then third, third, fourth, fifth edition, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I agree that third, fourth, fifth edition, the last twenty years or so, um, has definitely been shifting that. And I agree that, to my understanding, out of the book, fifth edition is not expecting a lot of uh, player content creation at the table. But I feel like a lot of people bring that into it. I think a lot of people, on an extracurricular basis, now take a lot, you know, have a lot of like, wouldn't it be great to bring more storytelling narrative ideas into fifth edition? Uh, and here's how you can do it. And here's how you can add more. And here's how you can add more. Yeah. So I feel like there's I mean, a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of uncritical, clearly this is good. Giving more players more power in all cases is always better. And my feeling is I think that it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think that the two elements, as I kind of just separated them, are ultimately a little intertwined, right? Like, especially in the extremes, when you say, like, well, we're going to have uh, no GM, then the the content must come along with the rules. Like, if our goal was to distribute the rules to amongst all the players, the content must come along for the ride. Um, whereas, um, you know, and then, sorry, uh, what was I, where was I going with that? The... Um, uh, the benefit, though, of like trying to backport that in, uh, I feel like they're they're very different arguments, right? Like like in the, on the rules implementation side, like it just becomes this this question of just easing the burden, right? Oh, this one person at the table out of the let's say you have six players, the seven people sitting at the table, there's one person, the DM, who is burdened with knowing all the rules. And guess what? We've generated more and more rules. The books are coming thicker and thicker and thicker, mm-hmm. and that's just too much for one person to do deal with. Like it's it's a chore, right? And we're so now we're trying to distribute the chore part of the game. Whereas the content generation and the narrative control, I think, is is more seen as this creative and fun element of the game. And and you know, once we start saying like, well, we're going to shift the work, then then you start hearing the argument about, well, what about the fun bits too? Can we shift some of those as well? Um, I feel like. Let's put a pin in that, actually. What a, yeah, it's a great yeah, point. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, 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 okay. I, I, I want to look at some of the viewer chat because I think multiple people are focusing on the idea of PC background creation. So so Ragnar has a good point and Ash has a good point there. Maybe I'd, I'd kind of like to look at both of those, actually. Uh, sorry, I haven't, I haven't been looking at the chat at all. Uh, <laughs> you, there, you start reading one and I'll get it up on screen. Which one okay. do you want to start? Okay, so uh, Ragnar at, uh, at 1311 there says fifth. It starts The thing starts with fifth or fifth yeah. Yeah. Uh, edition does have little bits of player control over the narrative, specifically in backgrounds. Uh, for example, the folk hero being used uh, to invoke the rustic hospitality ability to have commoners offer safe refuge. And, and, and I, I agree with Ragnar. My sense is when I dig into the fifth edition uh, backgrounds part, that feels very uh, tweaking the campaign content by players, even in fifth edition D&D. Mm-hmm. Do you get that mm-hmm. sense, Paul? Or does that feel something different than what you're talking about? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, backgrounds. Um, I don't know the specific background ability that Ragnar is referencing here, so I haven't I haven't dug into that one. But generally, I would say backgrounds do give players a little more input, but it's like upfront input, right? This is stuff you're deciding at character creation time, generally. Mm -hmm. So you might be pushing the campaign in a certain direction, but you're still giving the reins over to the DM once once play actually starts, I think. Um, I don't know about this. Yeah, I feel like... That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's, it. you know, where you go, you have a friend. <clears throat> so... Okay. So it's 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 kind of it's kind of embedding, you know, contacts uh, in the campaign world. Even if the DM didn't didn't intend that to be a particular village, you might have a possible like if you go to a village of people that's specifically, you know, um, negative towards outsiders, you might possibly have a debate about I specifically picked an ability that was going to give me a friend wherever I go. And that mm. might be counter to what the DM's intent was initially. So I, f I feel that. And 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 Ash also, you know, followed the same thing. He said, uh, doesn't including backgrounds in the character creation for fifth edition give them some narrative control? And that's my, you know, I that's that's my sense too. I mean, it's not a lot it, in fifth edition, but I feel like it's, it's there's yeah. there's bits creeping in there. I mean, I feel like you could extend this argument pretty easily though towards the whole like just any decisions the characters are making right like certainly uh all of us deciding to play an all wizard party isn't that a little bit pushing on this narrative control from the players of like well you thought the story was going to be about this but you know now we're all about uh, a group of wizards well, I feel like that's an interesting case. So, so let me, I mean, I was this morning, I was trying to think through like, what am I comfortable with? What am I comfortable with the players deciding in, in the game? Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, you know, picking their characters, class and race. I'm, I'm accustomed to being on their, in their court, picking their character's name. Obviously I'm fine with, um, preparing, you know, deciding what to purchase or kit out for equipment uh, deciding on what spells to prepare, I'm accustomed to. Um, you know, when when the when the player when the player character creation involves creating other people, I have a grandmother who's here creating places. Like I come from a town called Blah that's in this part of a geography world that I as DM didn't intend, or creating deities. Right then, I have to go. Well, maybe there aren't any deities at all. You've you've got the you've got the idea wrong here. Um, that starts, feels like it impinges more on the DM's creation of the world. The the one character, okay, but when the character background implies other stuff about other people, it starts to it starts to bother hmm. me a little bit more. The the interesting thing is, I I like that stuff because you know I'm largely an improvisational yeah. DM. I I'd like mm -hmm. to have very loose. Content in the beginning that then is, you know, grows through play, right? That kind of organically mm -hmm. grows, and so I like it when the players do things that kind of, you know, add constraints to me as DM, where I'm like, okay, now I have to include this detail. Um, for example, uh, Dan, have you played with uh, a game using the motivations chart? Um, uh, um, I guess I've touched upon that. I guess for the for the big yeah. bad, actually, like I, I think I, I threw that in there. So I guess sort of yes. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the similar thing, right? It's not quite player 
the players, extra things that you didn't know about the world are being added to the game out of your mm -hmm. control as DM. In this case, they're being added randomly by a chart rather than intentionally by a player. But I remember a game, uh, one of my birthday games where you came up and, and I think the first time I had Max roll on that chart and he was like, why am I going to this dungeon? And the answer was because your parents are being held hostage and you need to fetch the star of Umam Garash to, uh, to, <laughs> you know, to free them from their captor. And I'm like now, I, okay, now Max, now Max's character has parents in the world. Now there's apparently this this either expensive gem or magic item called the Star of Umam Garash. I have to invent who stole that. I have to invent why they kidnapped Max's parents. Right, <laughs> it was a lot of stuff, which I loved. Frankly, I loved that. I'm like, great, I mean, I'm gonna have to add all this crazy stuff to my world. So I don't know. I like I like adding little touches of that. I feel like if you're the type of GM who likes that stuff there's some interesting techniques from story games that you can incorporate into your play that will that will push push on that as well like, like what like okay what, what techniques are you thinking uh, well here's here's what this 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 doesn't this doesn't so we talked about the beginning like pre-play here's one that hence happens at the end of a game which i now use all the time and I hadn't realized how heavily I lean on this until actually I was just talking to Max about it. And, and he was telling me like, yeah, I basically expect this from your games all the time, which is when I get to the end of a game, whether it's a one shot or even a long campaign, I will turn it over to the players and say, you know, give me the denouement of your character. What happens to your character at the end of this story? Right. And I'm now at that point turning complete control over to the players, mm -hmm. but just to give them a little bit of. Well, you know, you've been playing this character all the time, and you are the person who's most invested in their personal story arc, so you tell me the ending. And, uh, you know, the stakes are low, because at that point, the game's over, right? Like, whatever they right. say, great. True. Yeah, uh, right. uh, it's not, I don't have to worry about incorporating it into any further content, because we're at the end. Um, I, I think it always goes over really well. The players always seem to love it. Uh, it adds a nice little coda to the end of the end of the game. And gives every player that chance to say, "Well, here's how my story ends." I will say that as an old school player, when I was in that that same game, um, uh, and and actually, right, our our viewers can see that because we have it on we have it on video in the Dyson's yep. Delve series, right? So yep. you, they could go see yep. that on the Wandering DMs channel. Jump to the end of the last episode there. Um, and I will, I don't know if this comes across on video, but I was very surprised as an old school player. I was like, yeah. well, I, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what this is. And <laughs> it, I, I remember a strong sense of like, kind of like being in class and really hoping that I went last. Like, 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 cause I was on the right, I was on the end of the table and there was a risk that I was either going to go, that you were going to call on me either first or last. And I was like, don't call on me first. Don't call on me first. I don't know what. Right. I don't know what the scope of what's expected here is. And I really want some other people that have done this before to go before me so I can kind of see what the scope is. I have heard it actually filled you... me with a little bit of anxiety, I will say. It was it yeah. was very okay. nice, but when I first heard it the first That's... time, I was a little anxious. Oh, I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that. But first I just want to add this one extra detail, which is something I heard on the uh Fear of Black Dragon podcast of a recommendation of a way to to push that. Um, or to add more structure to that kind of end, that kind of ending, if you want to incorporate that into your game, is to um, slowly increment the amount of time between each person. So you start with one person and you say, you know, what happens to your character the next day? And then the next person you say, and what, you know, what happens to your character at the end of the following week? 
and and continue to just push the duration of time. And then what happens to your, you know, what is the end of the story for your character? Give us that last description of your character a year later, right? And it's it's nice because it kind of things build on each other and people kind of cooperatively add to this this ending to the overall ending of the story. Um, but but it gives you a little more a little more rigid of a of a play space to be in when you have to say like you're you're being forced to go first, but you only have to think about tomorrow, right? What happens to your character in the next one day <laughs> or something like that? Um, as for it filling you with anxiety, I think that's super interesting because what we really get down to is who do you have at the table, right? Here's I always push against the notion of calling games GMless, um, and I like I like instead to use the word GM full because the, the once you go down that road. It's not like it's not like all the workload of implementing the rules and creating the content goes away. Mm -hmm. You've just distributed amongst everyone at the table, which really means everyone at the table must have those skills now, right? You can't just rely on one talented person at the table who's going to, you know, dazzle everyone with the with mm -hmm. an entertaining story. Everyone must dazzle everyone now. Um, yes, and yep. And that's not everyone's <clears throat> cup of tea, right? Like you have to have the right group to pull that off. I think there are some players, and and this is not. I'm not trying to knock them or anything, right? This is not mm -hmm. a. No. I'm not uh, saying that this is the wrong way to play. But some players want to sit down at the table and just witness a story, right? They don't want to be in the author seat. I, I so totally agree. Not put them right. in the right spot. Yeah. Well, let me, I mean, so, so on the one hand, I, we, we totally agree that not everybody wants that. Not everybody yeah. wants yeah. the, because, because I feel that, okay, let me, and, and let me, let me put a more positive spin on it. The, mm -hmm. the, the narrative storytelling mechanisms fight against immersion. Um, and I think that in the, in the early days, the, the, the concept was you're going to inhabit the brain of one person in the world and the dm is going to tell you what you see i mean i feel like this was the original offer of the dnd game when i first got into it the dm is going to tell you what you see and what you hear and what you perceive and you're going to use your brain to decide what that one character does in that context and in that sense particularly if you take like a fighter it's very concrete and it's very visceral and it's very i know how a sword's going to work and how a shield and how a rope and how a horse is going to work. And that's the stuff I'm going to be thinking about when I interact with the game. And the narrative storytelling techniques require you to interface with some amount of abstract rules that only exist in terms of this game. So when do I get the opportunity to tell the story? Is there, is there a baton or a pass or do we take turns or do I have slips of paper or do I have points? Mm -hmm that I'm, I'm paying at different moments, or do I pass it to another character, another player? And so for those kinds of techniques, you have to think about something that's outside the one, the one character's perceptions, and you have to engage in these unique pieces of abstract mechanics that don't exist in the normal world. And so I feel that, okay, you know, the, if you're interested in engaging the narrative story, okay, but if you're in, if you're someone who's interested in immersion of what it feels like to be in this role, I feel like every single one of those aspects is pulling you in a different direction. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and you know, just There's not everybody wants to think about mechanics, and not everybody wants to talk in yeah. a in a funny voice either. Um, and I can see I can see a, a, a conflict there. Yep. 
there's a if I if we imagine uh, if I if I if you'll go with me here for a second if I can apply a metaphor to role playing like like making a, a television series right because that works better than a movie because it's episodic um, so imagine the output of an RPG is like creating a TV series um, there's these different styles of play that you can imagine one where it's more like everyone around the table is in the writer's room. And we're all collectively creating this story and we're all inputting. And that's sort of that GMless, you know, more player narrative control, whatnot. And you're right. It involves an extra level of, of abstraction. Some people enjoy that style of play. Some people are not going to enjoy that style of play. But mm -hmm. it definitely, you're absolutely right. Like there's this, this creative outlet that requires you to step away to have more separation between yourself and, and the world uh, versus, you know, maybe you're a method actor in this television series, mm. right? Is very right. highly, yeah, like, right. I'm going to be super immersed and uh, I want all yeah. the sets had to be right and all the other players better be in their costumes and look right and I just want to hear and react. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've in, imbued myself with the personality of this character that I think I'm portraying and I'm just going to react. Um, which isn't to say in that mode that you contribute nothing, right? Like a method actor yeah. certainly is making, is, is improvising, right? Certainly is improvising. But um, but it's a very different kind of input. And I would say, if I can really belabor this metaphor, uh, there's a third style of play where you want to be an audience member, right? You want to be okay. like, I'm an audience member and I really like this one character, so I'm going to hyper-focus on them. But really, I'm mostly just here to watch. Good to keep in mind. Admittedly, that is not something I would have put on my bullet list, frankly. That's good to, that's good to keep in mind. <laughs> that type of player exists. Um, some, some people would say they don't want to be at the table with that kind of player. Some people, you know, are like, uh, I am the type of player and I want to play, but that's that's the level I'm willing to participate. Interesting. You know? Interesting. Yeah. I have, let me just read. So really great stuff in the, in, in the, the chat. Um, um, let me, let me do, okay, so let me let me read something. So I was doing some research this morning, and I found a, a blog post and actually a Reddit thread a couple of years ago on this issue of mm -hmm. uh, player narrative control. And of course, the person who started it was very pro um, player narrative control and was talking about ways to inject it into your standard fantasy D and D game. How to you know get started a little bit, add more, add more. Right, if you're uncomfortable with it, here's how you can add some and make it safe. And they were they started with things like player rolls dice to attack, they hit, they roll the damage, and the DM comes back at them and says, "Describe what that looks like. Describe mm. what that hit on that orc looks like. You've you've slain the orc. Tell me exactly what that looks like and what that happens. Or um, you're trying to climb a wall and you fail your roll. What does that look like? What does failure mean to you? What is it? What does the failure look like for your character trying to climb the wall? Okay, now." Another, you know, another person comes in, and I got to admit, I can kind of feel like a little bit of that anxiety of if I sat down to a game, I wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of, like, I'm not entirely sure what the mechanics here mean, actually. Does, does, does failing a climb roll mean that I fall and take damage, or does that mean that I don't get started? Um, I, I feel like, I mean, am I going to create giving myself damage? Probably not. So... I would be left a little bit at sea about what the scope is. And let me just read this. So, so one other yeah, person yeah. in that thread comes in with the other argument and they say, as a player, 
I hate this stuff in an RPG. If I'm playing an RPG, the last thing I want is for the GM to arbitrarily demand that I stop playing my character, stop experiencing the game world, and supply some random detail that I probably don't, uh, okay, now Dan's editing, care about. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll care about even less now that you've made it clear that you, the DM, don't care about it in the first place. So at least for, and now I know that, you know, some of our viewers are saying they don't see the conflict uh, between uh, uh, story elements and, and um, immersion, but for at least that, that one person, and I sympathize with that, that, that is their experience yeah. of that. That is, I, I'm fascinated by that, that output there, that end comment of that it, it illustrates that the DM doesn't care about the detail. Mm -hmm. uh, because for me, yeah. it is very different. Let me give you another, another story game technique that I've occasionally used in D&D. Uh, not, not a ton. I use this once or twice, and it's kind of fun, I think. But uh, which is basically to prompt the players to add detail to, a, uh, to the description of an area uh, in such a way that you're actually like you're actually providing yeah. them with information about what's going on, but also trying to get them to add detail. So, in in a specific case, let me let me give it to you. Um, I was running a game where the players were the scene. It was a role play scene essentially where the players are meeting with their the person who's going to hire them to go investigate a thing, and um, and I asked one of the players, and this is always generally how this goes. You, it's in the form of a question. You turn to a player and you say. Well, tell me what you see as you enter the house of your patron that that lets you know that they're pretending to be much higher class than they really are, right? So the interesting thing is, one, as DM, I've just given you a bunch of information. I just told you that this NPC is pretending to be higher class than they are. But I did it instead of illustrating it with, like, actual examples of imagery and whatnot that I'm now expecting you to interpret. I've told you outright that's what's going on. And I'm, now I'm asking you to supply the imagery and and for you, like you might have different associations, you may have different, you know, whatever, uh, uh, you know, inspirational material that you're going to pull from. You're going to remember a movie or a character from another book or something that you're going to. Oh, they, uh, you know, the uh, they're wearing really fancy clothes, but it's all stained and and worn at the fringes or something, right? Um, the point for me is not that I don't care about those details. I super care about those details, and I'm trying to invite the player in and and get them to contribute a little bit. So that um, we're all being really invested in the scene, right? So, and then I might go around the table and ask other players sort of similar questions. And so we're, we're constructing, I feel like, as a whole, a much richer description of an area that is maybe one line in the text of the thing I'm reading, right? That just says, yeah, yeah, the, the, the motivations of this, of this NPC is to hire them and do it so cheaply because they don't actually have any money or something like that. Uh, let me so just it's play, not that I don't care, me, is, is my point. Yeah. <laughs> let, yeah. Let me let me play uh Damon's argument um for uh um uh, Damon's advocate for just a second. Um yeah. has that so has the specific uh, this this is a two-part question. Um has that specific detail that you just mentioned made a concrete difference in the campaign after that fact? Like has someone came up with a particular item from that description that the, the gameplay was different than if they'd picked another detail? No, no. It, the, the point of that okay. exercise is not, is not for right. them. Like again, I, I brought up that example because unlike the one you're talking about, there's no implications on the rules, right? There's no implications of like just des describe failure. Yeah. And now I have to like make stuff up that maybe is actually gonna like, mm -hmm 
cause dice rolls or change, right? In this case, you're really just adding detail. And, and I've already, like, it's, it's sort of this reverse. Like, like, I told you the outcome of the die roll. You tell me what number you rolled or something goofy like that, right? Like, <laughs> right. And, and I told you in this boring plain language, right? I, as a DM, kind of did this lazy move here where I just told you the information, right? Without yeah. giving you a bunch, without dressing it up. And the nice thing about that is the inverse problem is if I hadn't done that, if I tried to explain like, oh, you meet this NPC and you can see he's wearing really nice clothes, but it's kind of stained and it's kind of worn at the fringes. Am I telling you the information I want to tell you or have I have I used imagery that maybe isn't going to click with you? Right, so maybe I can you see that. I mean, what I, I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like, I mean, just addressing like our, our Redditor friend's objection, I feel like that would, you know, if it doesn't have a specific if the detail they come up with isn't having a specific impact later on, I still think that falls into the ballpark of their criticism. Um, now, I'm I'm fine that it doesn't matter. personally with that it's, that's useless yeah. useless fluff. I, yeah. I think they I don't would know that it doesn't stick matter because I'm expecting. I, see, but I would argue it draws the table in, right? Players who maybe weren't paying attention are going to click in because they're being put on the spot a little bit to help contribute, and they're being asked to remember yeah. things that are evocative of the scene that's happening in front of us right now. Yeah, right. For me, it's that's the that's the implication. That's the, that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm after is to pull everyone in and get get their attention and get them all engaged in what's happening. I hear that. I, I feel for some people, I could see that that feels like their brain is being bifurcated if they have to think about what is their what is their character's motivation plus what are they right. designing in the world outside it. Um, yeah. Now, admittedly, look, I am usually focused on the the uh, you know the dangerous exploration elements of a dungeon crawl mm -hmm. or a wilderness encounter or something like that. How much would you do the same kind of thing? Because I know some people do this. How much would you do the same thing in a uh, room in a dungeon that the players have just entered? Would you possibly do the same uh, thing there? Uh, I haven't done that, but certainly what I'm what I'm calling out here is techniques I've heard of. Use frankly, what I'm calling out here is very much sort of stuff that is uh, de rigueur for games like Apocalypse World uh, type stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, which I know a lot of people play Dungeon World, frankly, right? And that is that is exactly what you're talking about. It is a dungeon crawl, mm -hmm. but with all these techniques built in. Uh, how effective is that? Is that more fun than a standard dungeon crawl? And eh, I played one of those games once, honestly, and I would say I did not find it as fun as a regular dungeon crawl. <clears throat> yeah, and I would I would but agree. I, with that. I got That's one. I got too. I got one data point here. I got one data point here. Possibly Agreed. that just means that dungeon crawls are better built for a more traditional content presentation rather than an interpretive. Yeah, uh, maybe that yeah. that kind of player narrative control goes better for your more highly role play story based you know, interact or social interaction kind of games rather than games about about uh, exploring an unknown wilderness and, and, and slaying monsters. That's not a bad argument. And of course, like the problem, like if you like, you know, like we've had a couple of episodes about like um, city adventures in the past. And of course, when you get to that, if, if assuming that the city is not just an abstracted like place that's safe that you buy stuff, um, uh, a city is so large, right? A real world city is so immense, immensely large that really no DM has ever entirely detailed such a place. And then maybe you, you need to depend on the players to fill in some of those uh, social human sites. I can see that as a legitimate argument. Now, so obviously we have shifted from 
the uh, player input as player character background start. And now we're kind of talking about the actual ongoing flow of the game at the table now. Yeah. And yeah. I got to admit, I would not want to do that. So, um, you know, uh, Apocalypse World style, I would not want the players yeah. to come in and be able to make up stuff that helps them on the fly. That really cuts against my challenge that's been put forth to the players. Hmm. Since. Hmm. I wonder really if... Uh, I, I, I'm struck with this notion of that possibly the way that these these styles intersect is when we're not talk when we if we zoom out a little right if we stop talking about a, an individual session an individual adventure right maybe it's not a great fit for your you know running of G1 at the local convention but if we're talking about an ongoing campaign right when we're in those in between times when we're returning to town or when we're deciding you know how are these adventures interrelated? Do I want to um, work for the local Lord to go deal with this giant problem, right? Like when we get to those more social parts of these sort of in-between bits of a campaign, maybe it is more interesting at that point to add a little bit of player narrative control. Whereas when you're zoomed into the specific, like now we're, now we're fighting the, the hill giant chief, maybe less so. Well, certainly, uh, you know, and, and someone uh, 20 minutes ago uh, mentioned Arneson's Blackmore campaign as having a multitude of places where the players could go. They could engage in wilderness play or they could make a domain or they could go into the Blackmore Castle, which itself was sort of semi-accidental to our understanding. Um, and I certainly agree that, you know, giving the players a choice about where to go in the wider world um, is a is is a great yeah. thing and should be on the table. Um, my my problem is actually yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say this really speaks to my style of running long running campaigns. Frankly, long running D and D campaigns. Usually, what I have is I have a bunch of adventures on hand that I like, and I'm like I could run any one of these various adventures. I have a big wilderness map, a big hex map, and I just kind of drop things in place. Stonehell's over here. Uh, here's Bridge Fair. Uh, here's, you know, the, here's where the, the, the slavers reside or whatever, like sort of elements from these different adventures so that I know, like, I have hooks to incorporate these adventures into our campaign. Um, but then I want to kind of sprinkle this information about and then let the players in the driver's seat a little more and say, like, okay, you're sure. adventurers in a town. What do you want to do? Right. And and for me, it, it like I always sort of likened it to this sort of like quilt making style of running a D&D campaign, right? I have all these nice pieces and I want to incorporate them into a larger whole, but that incorporation is going to happen dynamically on the fly as we're playing the game. Um, so I guess that's that's my argument, I think, of like when I think about when I've used these techniques in specifically in D&D, it is in those moments of I'm stitching the pieces together. Right? Why does why is Stonehill here? Who created it? Why do I care? Those elements, I'm going to let the players drive a little more, and um, and then find ways to hook it back in. Right? I had in my campaign, accidentally because of my critical chart, limb loss became a huge problem, and the players are like, "How do we deal with all this limb loss?" And they start talking to NPCs. How do I deal with all this limb loss? How do we restore our lost limbs? And and I was like remembering, oh, in Stonehill, there's this guy called the Plated Mage who apparently has these these creatures that are like monkeys with weird mechanical sort of quasi magically cybernetic limbs. And I was like, well, clearly the plated mage was trying to solve this problem too. You should go, you know, raid his place and steal his research. 
I really like the players saying, I want this. Like, I want to access or obtain or achieve this. And they have the DM pivot and say, mm -hmm. here's the place you can adventure to get that. I like that a lot. I would definitely not want the me, right, Dan, I would not want the players to have the capacity. The, there's a regeneration item, and it's in the temple. Yeah. And I can go yeah. get it now, right? Yep. And True. It, uh, but isn't, isn't, that, isn't, that, isn't having just the, the goal setting, isn't just goal setting a player narrative control? Isn't that a I don't think so. I, I th that's a thing no? that comes out of a brain. That's a thing that legitimately come, occurs in the neurons of one person's brain. And that that's exactly, to me, that's exactly, it's playing a role. That's what that that's uh -huh. what that particular role wants. And that's exactly what should be happening when you're playing a role. Is, well, is, well, how is, would you is stating things that they want? I mean, consider consider the rules for ten dead rats, right? In ten dead rats, the only way to gain experience points is to achieve ambitions, and the players routinely have to set my current player ambition is X, and then as a group they have to say the party ambition is Y, and and I give yeah. that to them as a means of like I want you guys a little more in the driver's seat. I want you to tell me what the game is about. And then I'm going to craft right. the content to feed that. And I they do have to step back game. a little yeah. bit. They do have to right. incorporate that abstraction a little bit and be like, let me step away from my character, think about what does my character want that would be entertaining to me as a player. I think. I agree. And I, and I, I was yeah. just playing a game with, with that same mechanic a week ago. And now, unfortunately, I'm failing... Uh, to remember what it was called, because I only played it once. Uh, looking at a list of games here that I've played recently. Heart? Maybe it was Heart? I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, that had that same mechanic. And again, that kind of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way that I had to step out and interface with these mechanics and think about how does picking this one goal going to affect <coughs> the play of this game? And is this is one more likely than another, or what resources will be available, or how I could possibly do that? Um, I, I wasn't totally. I'm not. I'm, no, I was not. Why? Why am I not pursuing all three of these goals? Why am I picking one today and not having three running around in my head that are supposedly important? So I was not. I'm not the biggest fan of it. I just played that. I just played with that a week ago myself, but I was not. It was not something I wanted to take away and, and steal, for example. Let me let me look at a couple of chat comments because, that, that have been excellent yeah. before they run yeah. too far back. A couple of minutes ago, I think that uh, I, I think that uh, William might have brought up Charm Person. Um, yeah, it was William bringing up Charm Person a couple minutes ago. Because I just have to mention uh, one thing about that. Is, is it this one? Here, I get it up on screen. Yes. Uh, Charm Person. Yeah, can you read that one to us? Because I don't have the full text in front of me. Yeah, neither do I, unfortunately. So, so it started. <laughs> I mean, so William saying, "I mean, charm person has often led to its own lengthy discussion, probably because it does share some of those traits and issues around uh, player, I think, intent and um, and control." Um, and I will say, you know, great point. We've talked about charm person uh, uh, before on this show and also my blog. And I will say that I was just working recently with Kevin from the Red Caps podcast. And we were writing an article on Charm Person that's uh, uh, very shortly going to appear in the next Grogzine issue uh, made by the Grognard Files guys for their, their GrogCon 
that they're having um, uh, this month, I believe. Thanks. So be on the lookout for that. We were I was just talking about that for a couple of days with uh, Kevin at the Red Caps, and we'll have an article about again about Charm Person coming out very soon over in the garage scene. The other thing that I want to look at is a little bit further back than that. I believe Eric Worldbender had a comment that was right on my mind right at that moment about supply points. And that's way off my screen here, but can you pull up Eric's comment on supply points? Uh, yeah, thank again, you. For, unfortunately getting cut off a little bit, but uh, let's see if I can find the full text here. Um, So nope, while Paul nope, looks nope. for that, I, it starts <laughs> with how do you feel about something like supply score, where you have a certain number of points which represent supplies you've brought, and if at some later point you need a shovel, you've got a shovel. How do you <laughs> how do you like those? How do you like a mechanic like that, Paul? Um. I'm trying to think about that. So, so it's it's an abstraction. I don't mind the abstraction mm -hmm. of uh, you know. It, I feel like if if I was DMing a game and the question came up, does my character have a shovel? Uh, frankly, in most cases, you know, unless there's a specific reason for me to push in one direction or another, I would I would do one of two things. I will either ask the player, "Do you think it makes sense for your character to have a shovel?" Because if so, then yeah, mm -hmm. you have a shovel. No problem. Um, or if I really want to turn the screws, maybe I'll roll dice for it. Say, yeah, yeah, 50-50, you brought a shovel. Let's roll a d6. Um, so I don't mind a point by a point system there of like just it's, it's a little more abstracted and uh, there's points to, that will dictate it. It feels, it feels a little arbitrary, as arbitrary as a d6 to me. So eh, eh. For, for, I will, that for me, that is very much the kind of thing that, for my bias in old school D&D dungeon crawling, that's the kind of thing that really cuts me, that I really yeah. honestly do not like. You really don't like it. And, because strict records right, must be kept. Well, it's more that, the, it's more that yeah. a major promise of the game is about uh, good preparation. And so there's a mm -hmm. lot, there's a lot, you know, me reading Gary writing in first edition D&D, there is a lot of space written about like the whole last the whole last section of the player's handbook is like several pages about good preparation for a good uh, dungeon uh, uh, crawl um, on the part of the players and picking the right equipment, being mindful about your encumbrance, picking the right spells, and that uh, you know pr good play is specifically about good preparation. Um, and so, you know, and again, maybe that's a game not everybody wants to play, but my sense of that's that's kind of the promise of the original game of is careful preparation for a campaign or a, a spelunking session is really key. And I have seen, you know, um, things like supply points, like Eric is talking about to take that issue off the table. Just the other day, I was reading um, uh, an a original D&D campaign house rule set that did that for spells that said, mm. in our campaign, you don't pre-pick spells. You just have a certain number of things. And if in s some point of the delve, you need a spell and it's on your list, anything on the list, you can you just know it that day and you cast it. And I was like, I that's not that's not remotely how I've played. And for me, it kind of breaks the promise of part of the game being the meta game about preparing for a delve. 
So actually, that that is that's something that would really break D and D for me. I feel like I will probably split in which way I go on this, depending on whether we're talking about campaign or or one shots, right, or convention mm-hmm. style mm-hmm. games. Whereas, like, if it's a one shot or a convention style game, I'm more likely to be looser on the reins and just say, like, the important thing, like, you know, we're we're kind of playing a slice of a campaign here. So you, we didn't have that time to sit down and play the meta game, right? Like we only have these four hours, so I'm willing to be a little looser on the grip and say, yeah, yeah. You, if we had been playing a campaign, I bet your character would have brought a shovel. So fine, you have a shovel. Whereas in a long run campaign, like, like I think it becomes more important that, like, yep, I want to see your inventory sheet of all the equipment your character is carrying and explain to me exactly how all this stuff fits on your mule. I think for me, my, my practice is still at con games to get pre-generated characters with the big stuff, uh, armor, weapon, major magic items, stuff like that. And I give the players a couple minutes with the equipment list and say, don't worry about money. You want to bring other mundane stuff? Just add mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And I'll, 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 mm-hmm. I'll count up encumbrance after the fact, but, but just take a couple of minutes. You want to add anything from the standard list? Go ahead. And I think that's how I do it. At uh, at one offs now, I think I've done that for a long time. That's not really new for me. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess. But I wouldn't want I, to do it I, once the once the play started. Yeah, but I also I feel like the problem for me there is, especially in a convention game, is one you're eating into those precious four hours. I don't want to do that. Like uh, I know we're not going to get through all the content, so I I want I want to you know. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, what was it? Rian said something like, "Like make the main thing the main thing." Like I don't want to lose time to this essentially boring record keeping. Um, and then the other thing is simply that the players don't have the context, right? This is a problem. We talked about this with um, with magic items, right? With if you're making pregens mm-hmm. and you have a bunch of random magic items, sometimes you end up with a really unusual magic item in there. And then the players in a convention game are going to misread that and go, wow, th- this character's got a drums of panic. That's important, right? That was intentionally placed. Oh, my character has a sword of dragon slaying. There's definitely going to be a dragon in this game. I, I feel like that is that problem is dodged by specifically talking about mundane everyday world items. So if I'm talking about a sack or a rope or a horse or a dog or a candle or a mirror, I feel like everybody knows what that is and that that's not an issue that's going to show up there. I think is my, I guess, is my but you again, not knowing, not knowing the contents of the content about to come, you don't necessarily yeah. know that, you know, I need spelunking stuff versus long distance travel stuff, right? Unless the DM out and tells you this, we're playing this kind of game where the, this yeah, game is focusing on you know, a done. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. <laughs> for a one shot, I mean, they should. They should. Yeah. They should give you a, a sales pitch. Okay. So before we run out of time, there's yep. one other thing. Yes. And uh, and yep. again, yep. this is springboarding off of, of your comment from 40 minutes ago. I believe it was David Heron um, who said, "I think that these uh, narrative control elements work better for veteran role playing players, and not so well." for uh, people who are brand new to the game. And and I agree with David on that point. That's my sense as well. And I also feel like, you know, one of my favorite articles of all time is uh, uh, Richard Garfield's 
getting lucky um, thesis that uh, expert players of any game um, want to take control of the mechanics of the game in order to highlight their skills better. And if you let the expert players take control, the game's going to evolve in that direction. And I feel like that's that's a trait of storytelling narrative games. And I love Paul's phrasing of GM full games. Of these are people that want to get involved in the mechanics of a role playing game that are um, promoting that kind of thing. Me, I love playing with first time players. It's my favorite thing to do. And I fear that a first time player is not going to know or be expecting to engage in those kinds of abstract tools and that kind of like larger world creation on the fly. And I fear my fear is it's gatekeeping for brand new players. And I would prefer to keep their 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 mental state role playing one brain with concrete real world items. We have, but we yeah, have, I, know, I, I think, think you have a common example of that. All, right? yeah. <laughs> I'll give I, you the I five have, minutes, so Paul. If you have, thanks, if you have a, thank you, because I have. Yeah, you, well, maybe if you stop talking and give me my five minutes, uh, <laughs> because I have so much to react to here. <sighs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I knew this would happen. This is what was going to happen. <laughs> In essence, uh, I totally disagree about it being blocking to new players. Uh, I absolutely have a, a friend who's a brand new player who's not played very much. She played in one short campaign of 5th edition D&D, and then since then has played a bunch of games run by people like uh, Christian and Colleen, who, who love to play these story games, and she has 100% enjoyed those way more, to the point where she's almost saying things like, I'm not sure I want to play a dungeon crawl, because I think that, you know, it's not my taste. I like this style of this kind of open-ended, you know, not really any rules, and I'm just going to make stuff up uh, kind of play. And I would argue that, um, and I've, I've said this uh, many times in conversations with Colleen, because she's a big story gamer, and I was coming from a very much an old-school D&D uh, background at the time when we were having these conversations. This is pre the beginning of 10 Dead Rats. Um, that I believe that old school D&D and story games have more in common with each other than either has with current modern D&D. That's my statement. Yeah, at least in terms of intent and in terms of ease of new players getting into it, their their rules light, uh, they, they lean heavily on improvisation, or at least the way I play old school games certainly do. Um, Whereas I've seen a lot of players, and I've played new, I've played a lot of the games of fifth edition D&D with a lot of new players, and I hear this reaction very frequently of, it's really complicated, it's really hard, I'm not going to know all the rules, I'm not going to know how to do it, uh, so I'm intimidated from starting to play the game because I'm not going to know what I'm doing, and I'm not going to have a good time, and, 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 people are, and the other players are going to be annoyed at me because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and frankly, the, I think they're not terribly wrong right? That uh, you sit down to an average game of fifth edition and it is try to distribute, it is increase the complexity of the rules to the point where it must distribute the implementation of those rules across all the players. So yeah, you better know your spell list, right? Yes, you better know how your powers work because I as DM mm -hmm. can't keep tabs of all of that. That's way too much. So I think story games, Old school D&D, both very welcoming to new players. And that's why I like both those styles of game. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. 
that, that like I, that that is that it, to me that's quite the heel turn of uh yeah. needing to uh, I mean, needing to possibly perceive storytelling games not as an enemy but as possibly an ally what is <laughs> what is that both both those both those games i feel like both those games for the presentation of both those styles of play to a brand new player like never played a role playing game before mm-hmm. is so much similar in terms of like don't worry about the rules just pretend right just put yourself in this situation, pretend to be this character, or pretend to be uh, that we're writing a story together and and contribute what you think is entertaining or amusing, and we'll figure it out as we go. Like both those styles of play can be presented in that way, and then it's very soothing to a new player because they're like, oh, good, I don't, you know, you'll tell me when to roll the dice and I can just go. <laughs> eh. I'm, I'm not saying you can't do that with 5th edition D&D, just to be clear. I'm not saying you can't do that, but I'm saying it does behoove the DM to really be in their, on their game at that point. If you're DMing 5th edition for a bunch of people who've never played any role-playing game ever before, you had better know how all the things work. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I will say, before we close, I'll say, look, you know, I, I, I try to keep an open mind. When I go to uh, conventions uh, once or twice a year, I usually look, I frankly, I usually look for an opportunity to get into one narrative storytelling game just to just to try it out and see if this one's really going to click for me and see what's happening over there. And you know, it's you know, I'm 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 sticking to the one so far. <laughs> um, right, not uh, all in yet. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I enjoy both. I do. I do agree that they're different kinds of fun. Um, that they exercise different muscles for me. Um, I like them both. No. <clears throat> All right, throw, we are throw definitely... up John Miller's comment. Throw up John Miller's comment as the, as the last comment we're going to see today, because I I feel for that. <laughs> John saying, John Miller says my mind is completely open, but it's only open to OD. <laughs> well put, well put, sir. I... <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Dan, any maybe final he's playing thoughts? me. I don't know. Final thought, okay, uh, maybe. <laughs> I feel like if you're going to bring uh, a player narrative control mechanics in the game, you should be mindful about it. It is not purely beneficial to everybody. Uh, there are at least some trade-offs you're making, and you ought to think about whether your players really want that. You know, And I feel it's a little bit of a difference between novice or expert players. Uh, what have they done in the past? What are they expecting? And I feel like you know, it's not... It's not purely beneficial in all cases to add more and more player controls because at the end of the day everybody becomes a gm like paul says so at least think about whether it's really going to benefit your game or not and whether you're taking it away uh, taking it uh, away from a direction that was your, really your goal yeah yeah i think i agree i basically agree with that um i, I don't know um consider the table consider the people sitting down at the table and be the sommelier of gaming to them craft what you're presenting to them based on their tastes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Listen to Paul, everybody. <laughs> wow. Don't listen to me. Listen to him. <laughs> uh, folks, if you have any thoughts, uh, specifically, like I would love to hear more details on cases where you have used... Uh, storytelling uh, or, or just player narrative control techniques in 
a more traditional game like D&D. Where have you crossed the streams? What worked? What didn't work? Let us know. Drop some comments in the video here. I'd love to hear it. Um, maybe this will continue the great debate, um, or at least add a little more fuel to the fire. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, yeah, we would. And of course, remember, if you're new to the show, that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering in DMs. We are on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook, and we're active on GitHub. And we have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. Uh, likewise, if you want to listen to us in audio-only podcast format, you can find that on our website at wanderingdms.com or through various podcast carriers such as Google Podcast and Spotify and iTunes. If you're listening to this show on one of those sites, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And of course, huge thanks to our patrons who support the Wandering DMs show. If you would like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms. And you'll see a couple different tiers of membership that we have there that include discounts on merch, access to our private Discord server, monthly behind the scenes videos, polls, and surveys that we try to do. And after party chat, we'll be over in the Discord server live for uh, some video chat in about 10 minutes to continue the conversation over there. Of course, uh, look for our upcoming shows this week. Paul will be back uh, tomorrow, Monday, with another 10 Dead Rats. Now, I believe, Paul, you're coming close to the conclusion of the 10 Dead Rats campaign. So if anybody, I think if anybody wants to see your like recap player involvement technique. I think that's probably coming up soon, right? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. In fact, that's, that was the context of the conversation I had with Max was uh, warning mm -hmm. all my players, mm -hmm. hey, this is coming, you better be prepared for it. Um, and if I could just really quick add into the list of our uh, patron benefits, um, uh, if you saw a recent episode, not so recent as I'd like it to be, of uh, us stocking a dungeon over the course of two shows, um, that is uh, nearly done with the editing phase. I think it's in my lap to do the final export of that, and that will be uh, available to our patrons for free. So uh, yet another good reason to uh, drop a dollar in our hat over at Patreon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that out to patrons and seeing uh, seeing what their what their play experience is with that, as a matter of fact. And uh, one week from today, we should have a special guest uh, for the Sunday talk show, as a matter of fact. Uh, not going to tell you who that is right at the moment, uh, look for an announcement on our social media uh, this week. So if you don't already follow us on uh, Twitter or Facebook or something like that, do so and you'll see, you'll be the first to know exactly who our guest is for next week. Uh, so we'll look forward to everybody being there. Don't forget, we are, of course, when is that going to happen? Well, we're live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So yeah, join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.